it's on the cross where the wrath of God and the hatred of sin and the longing that humanity has for goodness and for God are met. And in the process, the hatred that we have for God and our twisting of sin is also brought there and paid for on the cross. That's why Jesus died. And on the third day, when he rose again, all of that evil, that wickedness, that rebellion against God was gone. It had been paid for, for all his people. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge, and it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. Welcome to the Biblical Worldview Course. My name is Joel Sedicase, and this is session three. If my surroundings look a little bit different, it's because I am here. I'm not in Illinois, where I normally am, in the Fox Valley region. Instead, I am in San Antonio. And uh, the reason I'm in San Antonio is because my wife and I are here for a conference uh, for church movements. Church movements is the parent organization of the Think Institute. So we're down here and you get to enjoy this beautiful background of my hotel room while we speak. So that'll be a nice little change of pace. Um, as always, we have guys watching backstage right now who are going to jump on at the end for a Q&A. If this is something that sounds interesting to you, like you might want to take part in it, go ahead and head on over to thethink.institute slash worldview. And you know what? Um, if you really want to join um, it's not too late. You can still join and you can be a part of this, uh, the Q&A. We do a, a connect portion at the beginning and a Q&A at the end. All right. So without any further ado, uh, let's get to the reason why we're all here, which is to answer the question, what is right? Now, before we get started, I want you to consider this question. Does God command things because they are good or are things good because God commands them? 
how would you answer that question? This question is known as Euthyphro's Dilemma, and it was posed by Socrates to a man named Euthyphro in a theatrical dialogue that Plato called or that we refer to as the Euthyphro Dialogue. And it has been discussed ever since, so for the last 2,500 some odd years. Now, this is called a dilemma because of the seeming conundrum that it, that it seems to create. Think about this. If God has to appeal to some standard above and beyond himself, then he's not really the highest moral authority. As Christian theists, of course, we believe that God is the highest moral authority. But this, but, but then, on the other hand, if things become good simply because God calls them good, then the good would seem to be arbitrary. So, can you see the the dilemma here? Can you see the problem? But as we go, I want to answer this question from the biblical worldview. And what we're going to find out is that there there ultimately is no dilemma here. It's a false dilemma. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about. In this lesson, we are talking about morality. The question of morality is an important question. We're talking about goodness, and we're going to answer the second of our seven worldview questions. So if you recall what those questions are, um, though, well, you know what, I'll, I'll pull them up, I'll put them on the screen. Those seven questions are, here we go. Here we go. What is real? What is right? What can we know for sure? What does it mean to be human? What is the meaning of life? And where is everything headed? And then the seventh question is, who is Jesus? So now we're going to answer the question, what is right? And we're going to answer it from the biblical perspective, the biblical outlook or the biblical worldview. Now, I could have answered, I mean, I could have titled this session, What is Good? A lot of philosophy goes in that direction. What is the good? That's how Plato used to speak of it. He said, what is the good? You know, he would talk about the good. But goodness is a broader subject than just what is right. It's a, it's a broader topic. When you get into goodness, you're talking about questions like um, issues of beauty and morality and ethics. Um, when we talk about beauty, we're talking about aesthetics. So someone who goes to like uh, someone who goes to learn how to style hair or put on makeup, she has, she's studying aesthetics. Okay, morality and ethics deal more with human behavior, thought, um, word, politics, and law. That gets in to questions of what should be allowed in society. And then uh, we can also talk about axiology. Axiology is the study of values and, that, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's many different things we could talk about. If we were to say what is good, if that was our session title. Um, but instead, we're talking about morality. We're talking about what is right. And the reason why I wanted to talk about what is right is as Christians, we believe that man's most fundamental need his greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And the thing that has separated us from God is our sin. 
Sin is ultimately a, a question of the heart, and it's a question of morality or immorality. So because this is a Christian course, because we're dealing with the biblical worldview, I thought it'd be more productive for us to talk about what is right, to talk about morality. Now, morality is a universal question. Everyone has to deal with issues of morality. This is, this is an, a hugely important discussion that we need to have. In, as individuals, we are constantly dealing with questions of morality, constantly dealing with, with moral issues. And, um, and, you know, I'm a little... Sorry, I think my wife might be invisible in the background. She just got back from, from uh, a conference right now. We're down here in San Antonio. We're at this conference. So if you see someone in the background, uh, yeah, there she is. She's in the background. So um, look, listen, we're on the road. She's handling one aspect of the ministry. I'm handling another. So hi, Lisa. Good to see you. What's that? Yeah, give me something. Yeah, good. Some good San Antonio food. Some barbecue. She gets a barbecue. Okay. Uh, listen, it's going to be a little bit more of a laid back lesson, as you guys can tell today, because uh, because we are down here. Listen, this is the beauty of editing. So you guys who are watching live, you're going to get the, you're going to get the um, the full set of case family experience of Alisa and me. But those of you who are not. Um, you'll never know that this happened because I'm going to edit this out. Anyway, morality is a universal question. Every society wrestles with questions of right and wrong. And guess what? Every individual has to grapple with moral choices every single day. We might not always realize that's what we're dealing with, but nevertheless, we do. If you were to stop and think about it, if I asked you to think back about your the last 24 hours, 48 hours, I'm sure that you could think of at least one important decision you've had to make today. I know Elisa and I, I can think of one that, that we had to deal with. Um, and, and guess what? Those decisions are going to involve reasoning. You're going to have to go through thought processes, reasoning calculus to decide, should I do this or should I not do that? And if that reasoning involves thoughts like I ought to do this, or I shouldn't do that, or the Bible says to do this, or uh, the Bible says not to do that, then, then we are talking about moral issues. Those decisions become moral issues, moral questions. How we handle moral decisions and how we use moral reasoning is going to be influenced by both internal and external factors. It's going to be affected by our conscience and our thinking. It's also going to be impacted by the societies in which we live. So, you know, no man is an island. You've heard that expression before. And that's very true. You are not just a product of your own internal reasoning. Matter of fact, in this course, backstage, before we started recording, one of the guys mentioned solipsism. Solipsism is the idea that your brain, your mind is the only thing that exists. Well, we don't live in that world. Uh, we are affected not only by our own brains and minds and reasoning, but we're impacted by the world around us. My wife just came in, and I find her so uh, distractingly beautiful and wonderful that I was I was captivated by her. Uh, okay, she's actually gone right now, so I'm going to stop laying it on so thick, although it is true. But, uh, but, you know, we're impacted by the people around us. We're impacted by societies. And... Every society has its own definition of what is morally acceptable, both for the society as a whole, 
That's getting into more politics and, and things like that, but also for individual members of the society. And these moral rules we call mores. They're moral expectations of people who are members of that society. And they're reflected both in the formal laws, formal rules that are written down, but they're also reflected in the laws, those unwritten rules, which are expected of people, even if they're not actually formally written down. All right, let me give you a few examples here. One culture views children as sacred. And another culture says the children should be neither seen nor heard. We can probably think of situations or maybe even, if not actual cultures, maybe movies we've seen in which both were true. As another example, one culture encourages a young man to personally seek revenge, to avenge the blood of his brother if he's been murdered, while another would actually punish such an action with jail time or even death. So what do we make of this? Morality varies, mores vary from one culture to another. What does this tell us? Well, the universality of morality tells us something about what it means to be human. The fact that every society has standards and systems of morality, which again, deals with proper thoughts, words, and actions, it tells us something important about human nature. Now, skeptics will sometimes point to the differences between different societies' moral codes, mores, and moral systems, and they'll argue, oh, you see, because of this, morality itself has to be subjective. After all, if morality were objective, wouldn't you expect every society to eventually adopt identical systems, or at least nearly identical systems? And this is seen as an argument against God's existence. Now, we're not exactly getting into... Um, apologetics right now okay so for those of you guys and you know who you are you're chopping at the bit right now you're like i want to get into apologetics i do teach apologetics courses and and you are more than welcome to take the next course but uh right now we're getting we're talking more about worldview but worldview and apologetics are so intertwined maybe i can just take a quick detour and very very um, gently get into apologetics here. Put my apologetics, apologetics hat on for a minute, and we will deal with more apologetics at the end of this course. So if you're chomping at the bit, stay tuned. Okay, so skeptics point to these differences and they go, aha, God must not exist because if God were real and he were the standard of morality as, as, um, as Christians seem to want to believe, well, then why would morality be so different from one society to the next? And I got to tell you guys, on the face of it, they do actually seem to have a good point. Do they not? Think about this. Think about when it comes to math. All right. We believe that math is objective. You know, mathematics, maths, if you're uh, British. So we believe, for example, that two plus two objectively equals four, no matter how vehemently woke Twitteristas might disagree. And if you're just joining society right now, uh, maybe you missed in 2020, there was this huge brouhaha over whether or not two plus two equals four is actually a racist statement. I'm not even going to get into that. We're just going to assume uh, most rational people believe that two plus two objectively equals four. Math is objective. And guess what? Two plus two is four in Saudi Arabia, in China, on the North Pole, on the South Pole, and in the United States of America. Why didn't morality shake itself out in the same way then 
as math. If math is objective, not subjective, and morality, we believe, is objective, not subjective, why didn't they turn out the, the same way? Well, there's a good reason for it. It has to do with the heart, the human heart. As Christians, we believe that rules about right and wrong, morality, are closer to the human heart than mathematical formulas are. Because the heart is affected by sin, things that are closer to the heart are going to get twisted more because more is at stake. It makes sense then that mores would vary from one society to the other. They would change. They would be different. And we would end up with a diverse array of moral systems. Specifically because mores are bound up with, with good and evil, with righteousness and sin, and human beings are sinners. The question for the skeptic is not why does morality or why do moral systems change from one society to the next, but why are there any moral systems at all? Think about this. The formula that you use to calculate the area of a triangle it might be important to you, especially if you know, you're know you some sort of uh, engineer or even a city planner or somebody who's using math a lot, these mathematical, you know, geometric um, calculations. Okay, fine. But calculating the area of a triangle most likely is not going to impact your ability to, to carry out your heart's desires, especially your sinful heart's desires in the same way that a moral calculation is going to do that. So think about moral calculations that you make. Think about serious ones. Questions about stealing from your company. Questions about committing adultery. Questions about telling a lie to a loved one in order to make yourself look better. So every society is going to deal with, with questions of math and questions of morality. But the moral calculations that we make are going to hit a lot closer to home and therefore, we're going to have a lot more incentive to twist objective morality. Every society deals with these questions, but that does not mean that morality is subjective or fluid. It does tell us something about humanity. And I just alluded to it a few minutes ago. We can look at the universality of moral codes and mores across societies, across cultures and civilizations, however diverse those codes may be, and we can conclude this. Man is a moral species. We are created with moral intuitions, just like the Bible says. For example, uh, Romans 2, 14 through 16. Here's what it says. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Quick sidebar, when it says law, it's talking about the law of Moses, the Torah. Okay, sidebar over. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Man is undeniably immoral being. The Bible teaches it. Human experience, human observation comports with that, corroborates that. We are living in a world governed by moral law. And if we're going to understand ourselves and our world better, then we had better get to the bottom of what 
morality mean? We better get we better start from the beginning with the standard of goodness. So let's talk about the standard of goodness. And I'm going to give you a quick spoiler alert. God is the standard of what it means to be good. God is the standard of morality. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. End quote. Because God is the sovereign Lord, his good, pleasing, and perfect will is the basis for life's absolute moral standards. God is ultimate reality. And God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, is going to permeate all of reality such that morality is infused into our world and especially into moral agents like ourselves. God's I'm going to say that statement that I just said again. Because God is the sovereign Lord, his good, pleasing, and perfect will is the basis for life's absolute moral standards. So then, go back with me to Euthyphro's dilemma. Were Plato and Socrates correct? Is morality ultimately arbitrary, rooted in the arbitrary will of God? No. Because God's will is bound up with God's nature, and God's nature is good, that solves our problem. See, recall that Romans 12.2 says that God's will is not only pleasing, but also good and perfect. Well, his will is not going to be separate from his nature. His will is tied to his nature. And so God's very nature is the definition and ultimate standard of goodness. God's will and God's nature are good and perfect. And because of that, for those who love God, this, his will is also pleasing. Now, we talked about God's nature last time, and I talked about how God's eternal power and divine nature solve three philosophical questions. And I'm getting those two phrases from Romans 1.20, his eternal power, his divine nature. Now, here again, here we see God's divine nature swooping in again to solve the Euthyphro dilemma. And you know what? Plato should have known this. What Socrates and Euthyphro and Plato missed was that God's moral commands are not arbitrary, and neither does he need to appeal to some standard of goodness beyond himself. Again, God's very nature is the definition of goodness, of the good, to put it in Plato's terms. In fact, Jesus, the very Son of God himself, said, quote, no one is good except God alone, end quote, Mark 10, 18. We presuppositionalists love that verse, Mark 10, 18. God is so good that to love God is to love the good. I can prove that from Scripture as well. Did Jesus not say that the greatest command in the Torah was to, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, end quote, Matthew twenty two thirty seven. So, according to the Son of God, the height of morality, the greatest command, the greatest pursuit of goodness in the law that God gave to Israel is to love God. That is how good God is. To be moral, the, the height of morality is to love 
the good, which is, according to Jesus, to love God. Plato talked a lot about the good, talked about it all the time. And he talked about the good like being like the sun, which illuminates all of creation. But he missed, foolishly, that there is no good without the true God. And I say foolishly, because it's the hallmark of the fool to say in his heart, there is no God, according to Psalm 14.1. So Plato talked a lot about the good, but if Plato had, understand, had understood that there is no good without God, then he wouldn't have written the Euthyphro Dilemma. And um, we wouldn't have had to sit here and debunk the Euthyphro Dilemma. Plato really should have known that um, that God is that goodness is not an abstract concept, nor is God arbitrary. According to Romans 1, 18 through 24, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So Plato, along with everyone else, is without excuse. So let's talk about how God's moral commands then reflect his own goodness. Let's talk about how God's will is the basis for morality. See, God, goodness is not a mere abstract concept. God is good. God is magnificent. God is glorious and eminently praiseworthy. And so God's goodness was reflected in his creation as he originally created it. Go to Genesis 1.31. And you'll see that when God finished creating everything, he said, it is good. It is, he actually said, it is very good. Now, we look around us and we look at the world and we say, well, the world doesn't seem to be very good. We can actually observe that the world is fallen. We recognize that things are not as they ought to be, which really only points up the fact that there is a way that creation is meant to be. And this ain't it. That perfectly agrees with Genesis 1.31, that when God created the world, he created it good. And that, and because we are made in the image of God, we can recognize goodness when we see it, and we can recognize fallenness when we see it as well. Um, and so this should all direct us to God's perfect goodness, but also because we're, we're, we're getting these concepts from Scripture, which contains God, God's plan, this should also direct us to God's plan. See, God's perfect goodness and plan are reflected in the commands that he gives us. So when God issues commands, he says that his creatures ought to live by his glorious standard. When God gave a, a command to Adam, Adam was required to obey that command in full. He was not to eat from any of the fruit of the tree of the garden that stood or the, the tree that stood in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And actually, it's because Adam ate that fruit that our world is fallen today. Woe, uh, that is to say trouble, death, and sin came to all of Adam's children. So God says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Matthew 5, 48, those are the words of Jesus. And in 1 Peter 1, 16, it says, you shall be holy because I am holy. Okay, well, what, is it, what does it look like to love God? Or sorry, what does it look like to be holy? Well, uh, we can look at God. We could look at God who is perfectly holy. We can see how God loves us and how, th therefore, it makes sense then that God would command us to love others. And it's God's love itself that is our standard for love. Matthew twenty two thirty nine 39 says this, and John 13, 34, and 35 say this. So to summarize this section, 
we can say that God's nature is the standard of goodness and God's will is the basis for morality. And to love God is to love goodness. The moral life then, the good life, is one that is lived in pursuit of God, in obedience to his will, to his commands, motivated by the love of God. I'll say that one more time. The moral life is one that is lived in pursuit of God, in obedience to God's will, motivated by the love of God. So how can we test the morality of something? So we've defined goodness and morality, but what about where the rubber really meets the road? How can we judge whether a thought or a word or a deed is right or wrong? How can we test that? Well, we begin by restating that God is the standard of goodness, of morality. God's nature is the standard of goodness and morality. And then we can say that moral goodness then is, now follow me here, moral goodness is a quality that a thought, word, or deed has, and how much moral goodness that thought, word, or deed has is going to be directly proportional to how similar it is to God's perfect morally good nature and his commands and actions, or we might say his will. So how moral something is, is directly proportional to how close it is to God's will. Doesn't that make sense? God's will is the basis for, for morality. And um, maybe to use a human example from everyday life, well, it's an everyday life thing for me because I hail from Chicago. So some of you guys who are from big cities, you're surrounded by big, tall buildings. Right? But, but any building will do for our example. It would not make sense to talk about how tall a building was unless you understood this. It doesn't, well, let me say this. It doesn't matter if you're using feet or meters or yardsticks, or you made up your own measurement, inches, it doesn't matter, whatever. It doesn't make sense to talk about how tall a building is unless you have a definition for tallness, for height. We have to understand that tallness is a measurement of how far the top of something is from the ground, or at least from the bottom of it. Okay, once you understand that, you can say that the Sears Tower is 1,454 feet tall, and that statement is meaningful. It means something. It's we, we understand that feet are a measurement of height or of tallness. But we have to have a definition of what it means to be tall. In the same way, it does not make sense to talk about how moral an action is unless you, you understand that moral goodness is a measurement of how closely a thought, word, or deed accords with God's nature and his will, or God's thought, uh, deeds and speech, or God's nature, will, and actions. In other words, God's perfectly good and moral nature. So once we understand the definition of morality, what it means to be moral, we can therefore judge morality by checking it according to the standard of God. And so where do we learn about God's nature and God's will? Well, we can learn about it from creation, sure, yes, but we have an infallible standard, an infallible book, an inerrant record of God's nature and will in the Bible. So, 
we test the morality of a thought or an action or a word, whether it is right or wrong, by God's word. So we can look in Scripture and we can say, what has God commanded us in Scripture? What examples has he given us? So if you're a Christian, you can read Holy Scripture. And actually, if you're a Christian, you also have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides you and helps you reason through these questions as you search the scriptures for answers. That's important. I definitely do not want to negate the influence and impact of having the Holy Spirit within us. God has also given us the church. So we have other believers around us who can also help guide us. Um, we, we get into small groups. We attend church on Sunday. We take courses like the Biblical Worldview course through the Think Institute and the Hammer and Anvil Society, where we have... You know, we have brotherhood time before and after the lecture. And um, and so when we, when we talk with our brothers and sisters in Christ, they help guide us as well. But here's the thing. It's very important to realize that the counsel of the Holy Spirit will never contradict Scripture. And if the advice of our fellow believers is going to be rightly considered godly, then it can't contradict God's Word either. God is holy and true and perfectly logical, and God is never going to contradict himself. So, while I would never want to negate the Holy Spirit, he's God, okay? He could negate me. I could never negate him uh, and be truthful. But, and I would certainly never want to negate the local church. This is what I do. I, I attempt to serve the local church. That's what I'm passionate about. But sometimes people will go, yeah, you've got scripture, but I've got the Holy Spirit. And they sort, of, they sort of say that you don't need to obey Scripture then, or Scripture might not be clear. I better follow the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Yes, okay, fine. But how do you know that's the Holy Spirit and not a bad burrito that you ate last night before bed? Okay, we test everything against Scripture. God cannot contradict himself, and we already have a record of what God has said in Scripture. So I want to just keep everything in balance. Now, Questions of morality have eternal importance. Let's discuss how morality is directly relevant to eternal life. Because it can be very tempting to think about all this philosophical talk about morality and the good, all this theological talk about um, uh, you know, God's nature and the Trinity— and we can just write these off as esoteric things with no direct relevance for life. However, this is far from the case. If God is the standard of morality, and he is, and if only God is good, and he is, only he is, then that puts to shame our own human efforts to earn goodness. This has eternal significance. Because... In, in this life, oftentimes, we don't recognize how clear and distinct the boundary is between good and evil. It's common today to say things aren't really black and white, but rather they're really we ought to think of life and morality as various shades of gray. Morality is more like a spectrum between good and evil. However, the Bible does not leave us this wiggle room. This is really important because we've got people, our neighbors, maybe even ourselves, who are trying to blur the line between good and evil, and then saying, I'm going to do things that are mostly good, and that will be an, a good enough for God when I have to stand before him on Judgment Day. 
Okay, the Bible does not allow us to think that way. According to the Bible, one single sin is enough to earn God's wrath and hell. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So when you understand, so that's not going to make any sense to you unless you understand that the standard for goodness, for morality, is God himself, his nature and his will. There is an infinite difference between a life lived of moral perfection and purity, which is what God has and what God requires. Remember, be holy even as I am, as, as God is holy. There is an infinite difference between that kind of holiness and a life that has been stained, marred, tainted by sin, even a single sin. As an illustration, a single drop of arsenic ruins your glass of water, and a single sin ruins the man, the life. Of course, if we're going to be honest with each other, none of us is guilty of just one sin anyway, so it's a moot point. Apart from God, we are filled with sin. Now, this brings us into to such an interesting situation, because apart from God, we long for goodness. This is why societies have mores and moral systems. We are made in the image of God. The problem is that we twist that longing for goodness, and we twist it towards false goods, false gods, the Bible calls that worshiping idols, and we also pick and choose which true good things that we will pursue while neglecting and suppressing others. And the number one thing that we suppress that is that is moral is God himself. We hide from God. Uh, Romans 1.18 talks about suppressing the truth of God. Now, our first father, Adam, when, after he had sinned, he hid from God in Genesis 3.10. And we, his children, do the exact same thing. We do this by suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. And we may seek to soothe this burning itch that we have for goodness in various ways while trying to keep God at arm's length. We do this through religion and relationships with other human beings, through um, sub substances, substance abuse, narcotics, which deaden the conscience, at least for a time. But all of this inevitably only makes our situation worse. It exacerbates our, our situation. It's like rubbing salt on a wound. The life that is lived in the pursuit of goodness by any other means other than reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ is, in the final analysis, futile. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon calls it a chasing after the wind. So now, now we can begin to really step back and realize the magnitude of what Jesus did. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore, he carried on himself all of the sins of his people. And he, he died for those sins. In his death, Jesus brought together both our desire for goodness and our hatred of God. We long for goodness, but we hate God. 
the Bible says that Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion. Roman, uh, Isaiah 53, 5 says that. In order to reconcile to God, he did this. Jesus won a magnificent, unbelievable victory over sin when he died for those sins and he rose again. So as a man, he had this desire for good. He's also God. He also had that, that perfect desire for goodness. As God, he he um he he has infinite capacity to pay for sins but as the meeting place the bible calls him in romans 325 the hilasterion which is another word for the mercy seat which is where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on yom kippur the the day of atonement jesus is the meeting place between God and man, just like the mercy seat was on the Ark of the Covenant in, in the Old Testament era. And so it's on the cross where the wrath of God and the hatred of sin and the longing that humanity has for goodness and for God are met. And in the process, the hatred that we have for for God and our twisting of sin is also brought there and paid for on the cross. That's why Jesus died. And on the third day, when he rose again, all of that evil, that wickedness, that rebellion against God was gone. It had been paid for, for all his people. Now, this side of eternity, no human being is ever going to be perfectly moral. We're just not. And yet, the Bible says that those who trust in Jesus have a moral perfection credited to their accounts, Romans 4, 5. God sees us as if we were as good as Jesus. That is eternally significant. That is not some esoteric philosophical concept. In fact, for the last five minutes, it's probably seemed like I'm preaching a sermon to you. In a way, I guess I am. Because I'm talking to you about matters of eternal significance. I'm talking about about. God and sin and Christ and how everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will have their evil purged from them, first in name only, we might say, and then eventually in reality. Man's most pressing need is to be reconciled to God. And so that is why the message of how to get that reconciliation is utterly, eternally significant. Okay, now, we've got a few minutes left, so let's just talk about why only the true God can be the standard of morality. Only the triune God revealed in Scripture can be the basis of morality. We're not going to exhaustively prove this point right now. Again, it's not an apologetics course. It is a worldview course, but we can look at a few alternatives to the Christian God, if I can call him that, the, the God of the Bible, and see where they fail to measure up. I've already acknowledged that various cultures have different moral systems, and I've attempted to explain why this does not negate the fact that the, the moral reality behind those systems, i.e. God, is really there. Um, but let's look at a, a few of those systems. We're just going to look at two. The first one is moral relativism. Could it be that there is no objective morality? Maybe morality is subjective and it varies from person to person or from culture to culture. 
Ultimately, this boils down to there being no morality at all. Let me explain why. If morality is purely based in culture, then by definition, it would always be wrong to challenge your culture. So what does that mean? Great reformers, Martin Luther King, uh, Harriet Tubman, who, who carried slaves on the Underground Railroad to freedom, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted Hitler. These guys are all immoral. By definition, if and only if, Morale, well, maybe not only if, but if morality is subjective or culturally based. Furthermore, it would always be immoral to challenge someone else's culture because to them, it, that is what's right. John Frame, who's a theologian who has influenced me a lot, asks this question. How do you adjudicate between two moral frameworks that sit before you that each believe its morality is superior to the other person's? You see, guys, if morality were purely culturally defined, then Ronald Reagan would be immoral when he challenged the USSR to tear down the wall in East Berlin. And the brave folks, the brave soldiers who won World War II against the Nazis and the Axis powers would be, by definition, immoral. Does the moral relativist really want to argue that might makes right? That cultural, that, that morality is based on culture and ultimately comes down to a vote or a cultural ex acceptance. Such a view, here's the thing, such a view could be refuted by simply passing a referendum and saying that uh, uh, it's now moral to execute everyone who believes that morality is culturally defined. And then just saying morality is no longer culturally defined. Our culture believes that now. Okay, do you, do you get how absurd that is? But that is what would actually be moral in a world in which morality was culturally based. So that just it just can't be the case. Now, let's say on the other hand that morality is individually based. Okay, so now, now it's no longer a matter of culture, but everybody gets their own morality. I'm not saying we have different apprehensions of morality, but literally what you believe about right and wrong is true. It, what you say is moral is moral, and what I say is moral is moral. At that point, we're really just talking about preference. Morality has no more weight, importance, or obligation than what fla favorite flavor of ice cream you have. You know, Alisa and I just went to Ben and Jerry's here in San Antonio. We got some ice cream. Uh, I got We both got coffee flavor, and then I got uh, Cherry Garcia, and she got that other one, that really good one, what is it? I forget, she got a different one. If morality was subjective, then, li then literally she and I are both making moral choices and our, our moral choices are no more significant than you know me getting Cherry Garcia and she getting whatever hippie flavor she got. Delicious hippie flavor, but you know, Ben and Jerry, they're kind of hippies, right? Morality is more important than ice cream flavors. We all recognize this. We know that morality is not based in the individual. Now, what about what about if? Um, uh, all right, all right. Here, let me let me respond to another objection because I hear some of you going, "All right, smarty pants." I don't know if you said smarty pants, but you're saying, "All right, set a case." Why does it have to be that your worldview? alone has the only basis for true morality. 
Maybe morality is objective, but why couldn't materialism ground morality? You know, wh why couldn't some other god or even many gods ground morality, be the basis for morality? Well, I am so glad that you asked that question, and I resent you calling me smarty pants. Let's talk about it. The answer becomes very clear when you consider what moral rules are. What are they like? What are their attributes? First of all, moral laws are not made of matter. So if morality is not subjective, and I think we've just shown that it's not, then there must be objective moral laws that are out there. But laws are not made of matter. They are immaterial. So materialism, the view that says everything is matter and energy, is completely out the window. It has to be completely out the window. Unless you're willing to say that morality is made of matter, which changes all the time, which is not absolute, which is not objective. And how can a law be made out of matter? It can't, by definition. So materialism is out. What about another conception of God, though? Well, that's not going to fly either. Moral rules are absolute and universal. They are, uh, for example, you know, murder is wrong, no matter who is saying it, no matter who's arguing against it, there are no exceptions, always and everywhere. So the non-absolute, capricious gods of the pagan religions, those are out. You know, Zeus and uh, Aphrodite and Athena, they do not ground absolute universal laws because they're not absolute and universal. Moral laws are also knowable to us. They are revealed to us. And they are propositions, and yet they seem to be known instinctively. Instinctually, they are given to us. For example, no one had to tell you it's wrong for someone to steal from you. No one had to tell you don't let someone harm your loved one. These are propositions that came preloaded into your software, into your conscience. So any concept of God that cannot speak is out. Um, Hinduism says that the, the world soul is all that is, but the world soul, Brahman, does not speak to you. A God like that cannot, cannot um, tell you moral propositions, which is what moral laws are. And I know I'm skimming here, but you know what? We're going to have a Q&A. So if you have questions, feel free to ask. Finally, morality is deeply interpersonal. So much of it has to do with how we treat others. It wouldn't make sense to say that the God behind morality never had any experience with interpersonal relationships until he created someone. Because morality is grounded in God, so God must have a interpersonal, uh, must have had interpersonal relational experience. If there is a worldview, the God of that of of which, if the God of that worldview meets um, all the criteria except the interpersonal one, that can't be the God who grounds a moral law like "you shall not murder," or "don't steal," or "tell the truth." So, is there a worldview then, and I know you know where I'm going with this, is there a worldview, the God of which meets all these criteria and then can therefore serve as the basis for morality? Is there a God who is not made of matter, who is absolutely good, always and everywhere, who is knowable to us, who speaks propositions to us and reveals his will to us? Well, wait a minute, doesn't this sound exactly like the God of the Bible? Now, what about that whole interpersonal aspect of it?
Okay, because maybe we might say, well, yeah, sure, but the God of Judaism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam, you know, he's got all those attributes as well. But he's but those those gods are not interpersonal. But our God is. Remember the Trinity? God's very nature is triune. He's three in one. The three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been in perfect communion with one another, literally for forever. And so needless to say, they treat one another perfectly morally with dignity and love and fairness. So when Jesus said that the greatest commandment in the Torah is to love your neighbor as yourself, sorry, the second greatest commandment, Jesus knew what he was talking about. He was saying, be like God. There is no other conception of any God in any religion in which God has all these attributes as revealed by the Bible. And so to really drive the point home, when you look at the attributes that moral rules have and you discern what kind of God or reality could ground them, when you try to match a metaphysics to your morality, you end up coming right back to the doorstep of the biblical worldview. God is inevitable. So to conclude, the question what is right is an important question that ultimately finds its answer in God's nature and will. This is a question that is directly relevant to life and eternal life because of the gospel. And knowing its answer allows us to test the morality of any thought, any word, or any action. God is the only one who is good. And while the subject of morality is addressed by every society, only societies that acknowledge the Lord will be truly capable of answering it accurately. By God's Spirit, may we be the ones to bring that answer, to bring the gospel to them. I almost forgot to ask you to consider prayerfully partnering with our ministry. My wife and I, Elisa, we are support-raising missionaries with crew church movements, and we are completely funded. The Think Institute is completely funded by like-minded individuals and families. If you have been blessed by this content, the content that we put out through the ThinkPod or the curricula that we put out, then I ask that you would prayerfully consider joining our team. If you want to learn more about that, go to thethink.institute slash partner, and uh, there'll be more information for you there. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedekase. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute/partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think.